There was a season of my childhood where I had a fascination with submarines. I don't know why and I don't know for how long, but there was something about seeing what was below the surface of the ocean that was to me a source of fascination. And I remember when the opportunity finally came. It was Disney World. It was a childhood vacation in my elementary years. It was the ride 20,000 leagues under the sea. And we were all going to aboard the submarine Nautilus and Captain Nemo was going to take us down subsurface and we would finally get to see what was underneath the ocean surface. And so we got in and the submarine barrels down and the windows clear up and all of a sudden there's coral and starfish. And, And then it went a little bit deeper and as we went to different layers, we got to see all of the various things, the different layers. Now, I didn't know at the time that the submarine didn't actually ever leave the surface. But somehow it satisfied the desire that I had to do that. Now, a study of the Bible is much like a trip in a submarine. There are various levels and depths, and different depths highlight and reveal different things. And the challenge of being a Bible teacher is preparing each week, going through the Word of God, and choosing a depth to explore so as to see the most and gain the most, but yet not go so deep that people drown along the way. Now, having said that, the book of Ruth I have found to be a very challenging book to teach. And here's the reason why. It's because at every level, whether it's just skimming the surface or whether going to that 20,000 league depth, there's so much to see and so much to gain, so much to glean And it's very difficult to sweep it all as we go. On the surface level of Ruth, way at the very top, the story itself has all of the ingredients of an Academy Award-winning screenplay. There's tragedy, there's drama, there's suspense and surprise, there's romance, redemption, and of course, there's a happy ending. And as you go through, it pulls on the soul strings of the heart as you just hear the moving romance story between Boaz and Ruth there on the surface level. But as you move slightly underneath, and you go to subsurface level one, there you find that rich Ruth is also rich with spiritual truth, perseverance, friendship, loyalty, faithfulness, waiting on God, counsel concerning marriage and relationships, repentance, hope, virtue, values, and of course, love. There's so many good examples and so many good lessons on things that are useful to us. But moving a little bit deeper, subsurface level number two, we find that Ruth is also a milestone towards the Messiah. Here's what I mean by that. The entire account of Old Testament scripture is pointing to and paving the way for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so the incarnation is what all of it points to. And Ruth is a vital marker of transition in the unfolding of that plan. God first called Abraham out of Ur and chose the man through whom he would birth a nation. Two generations later, his grandson Jacob would give birth to 12 sons that would ultimately become the 12 tribes or the patriarchs of the nation through whom God would then bring his Messiah. They went to Egypt where they were multiplied and Moses brought them out. There was a great exodus and they wandered through the promised land. And then God gave them the place where their nation would be. He planted them in Canaan. And so he used Joshua and brought them across the Jordan River. And he put them in the place where they would flourish and blossom. And so now they were a nation called, started from a man. They're now in the land and it's, in Ruth that we find the beginning of the messianic family of which Ruth and Boaz are the very root. And so thus the book of Ruth becomes a vital ligament for us that attaches Israel's history to Israel's destiny. And that's probably the very reason why Ruth is in the Bible because there's many good stories, many things to learn. But for that reason, I believe God put it in scripture so that we would be able to tie the Messianic family, to the nation of Israel. But if you leave that level and you go a little bit deeper to I would call the 20,000 league level, what you find then is you find the romance of redemption. And that probably is the most valuable aspect of the book of Ruth, and that is what it reveals 
under the surface about the heart and will of the Father towards his people. And here's what happens at that level. Is that history, that is the actual account of what took place in Ruth, becomes prophecy. Pointing forward to something that will yet happen. And here's what I mean by that. The book of Ruth is an actual account. The events actually happened. The people in it really lived. And the events that it testifies of really took place. But at the same time, it kind of takes on the flavor of a fable. A fable is a story that's intended to teach or point to something else. Now, it's not a fable, but it takes on that flavor. Hosea chapter 12, the prophet Hosea said this. Speaking, of course, by the Spirit of God. He said, I, God says, I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. Another translation says the same verse this way. It says, I spoke to the prophets, gave them many visions, and told parables through them. And that is that the events... The things that took place in the lives of these people, although they were actual events, they were also prefiguring or pointing forward to things that God was yet going to do in the future. And here's what happens in the account of Ruth at this level, is that God was actually acting out a future scenario through the circumstances Or to say it another way, is that the story doesn't just inform us about a historical event, but rather it performs for us what God is going to do in the future. So what is the story about? The story is about a wandering Jew and an unqualified Gentile, Naomi and Ruth. And after years of pain and loss, they come to the house of bread, Bethlehem, hoping to find some favor from God. And it's there that Ruth, this unqualified Gentile, providentially finds herself gleaning in the field of a wealthy, mighty redeemer whose name is Boaz. She's noticed by him, and even though she doesn't know who he is, he shows her favor. He gives her, first of all, a place to to glean, to reap, a field. And then he gives her a purpose, something to do. And then he gives her protection and provision, water. And through this interaction, Naomi's hope is stirred again. The wandering Jew is made hopeful. Seemingly, she's been forsaken, a refugee, a Jewish. But she sees Boaz take notice of Ruth and her hope is stirred. And it's a story that foreshadows the redeeming work of Christ and the redeemer heart of God. And here's what it reveals and here's why it matters. It reveals God's motive in redemption is that God didn't redeem man, God didn't come into our lives and interact with planet Earth out of a sense of obligation because of anything that he would receive or a paternal feeling of have to, but he did it out of absolute love. Now, I recognize that at the 20,000 league depth, as we look at some of the things in this book that are symbolic and pointing forward, I realize that for some of you that are here that have a little bit more background in Scripture, you're going to see these things and you're going to say, wow, that's awesome. But for some of you that maybe don't have that same level of depth, history in the Scriptures, you're going to hear the things and you're going to say, what? You know, I don't get it. How does that make sense? And so again, for me, it's the difficult part of knowing how to go through these things and to stay at a depth where we gain the most but don't drown along the way. But the picture is so clear, it cannot go untouched. And one more thing before we get into this text, is that tonight we're going to do a little bit of a water balloon test. Remember when you were a child and you were filling water balloons at the hose bib or in the kitchen sink, and you had that one balloon that you just wanted to see how much water you could get to go in there before the thing would snap? And you watch the membrane of that balloon just get thinner and thinner and thinner until finally it explodes. And, you know, sometimes water went everywhere. I'm going to do that to you tonight. I'm going to do the water balloon test, and we're going to see how much you can handle without losing all of it because there's so much to see in Ruth chapter 3. So where are we at? We have a wandering Jewess. She's a picture of the Jew in modern times. We have an unqualified Gentile, Ruth. She's a picture of you and me. We have a mighty savior, a man named Boaz, a picture of Jesus. And we have the beginnings of a potential love relationship, a picture of covenantal salvation, the call that we all have to be invited into relationship with Jesus Christ. And now in chapter three, the unqualified 
I'm sorry, the wandering Jew, Naomi, is going to point the way for the unqualified Gentile to get saved. I call it a suspenseful salvation situation. And so we're in chapter 3, if you'll look with me at verse 1. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So coming back up a few layers at story level, we see Naomi interacting with Ruth. And she's concerned for her well-being. Ruth has traveled back from Moab. She's a stranger in Israel. In Israel, I'm sorry, and Naomi, concerned for her well-being, desires that there would be security, that she would have a place, that her future would be secure. And so she hatches a plan whereby she will seek to arrange a marriage between Ruth and Boaz, this man who has been so kind and shown such favor and who is so rich, of course, and so mighty. She says, shall I not seek security for you? Is that not the cry of every heart of every man, woman, and child that lives? At every stage of life, there's something in us that seeks after security. What is security? Security is safety. It's assurance. It's the feeling that you're not going to lose the things that you like, the things that are dear and precious to you. Another way, another translation says rest. And that's what security is. It's a feeling of rest, a feeling that things are at ease. Let me ask you a question. Are you tonight secure? Do you have a sense of security? How about in your job? Do you have job security? A feeling like it cannot be lost. A feeling like it is a place of rest. That you don't have to worry that it's always going to be there. And as long as you want to go, there's going to be a place for you to go. How about in your marriage? Do you feel secure in your marriage? Like your spouse is that pillar of strength in your life. That that person isn't going to leave you. You can trust them. They are faithful. Is there security in your marriage? How about in your money? The way we watch what's going on with money in these days is we watch the value of the dollar plummeting. We watch financial systems destabilizing. And at one point, what we thought perhaps was an amount of money that you could rest in. Now it doesn't look quite so much like that. It's not so sure. Is there security there? How about in your mind? Do you feel secure in yourself? in your own mind, like things are okay. Let me ask a question. Does security really exist in this life? Because if we're honest, if we consider any area of our lives where we would seek to be secure, we find that this world has nothing to give us but instability. So is there a place where security actually exists? It does in this account. Because Boaz is not a figure of a human source of strength or a human supply of money or a place of mental rest and peace. But rather, Boaz is a picture of the only thing in this universe that can provide security, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's what Ruth says, I'm sorry, Naomi says in verse 2. She says, now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? Now, what would be the point of Naomi asking Ruth this question? I mean, in today's day and age, if someone was your relative and you were insinuating marriage and security, you would say, yuck, you know, we don't marry our relatives. And that certainly wasn't the context whereby Naomi was trying to say, hey, this guy's related to us. Maybe he'll feel sorry for us. You know, that's not the idea. But she's pointing to the custom that we've spoken about in previous studies, and that is the law of the Goel or of the kinsman redeemer, the family redeemer. Now, here's how that works. The land of Israel is God's land. By the way, if you watch the news, if you hear about peace talks, political strategizing, understand that that land over there is not for governments and generals to divide and fight over. That land belongs to God, and he gave it to the children of Jacob, the seed of Abraham. It belongs to the Jews. And when Joshua brought them into the land, it was divided by tribe and by family allotment. That is, it was given to them by God. God gave them that land. It belongs to them. Now, God wanted them to have the land, and he wanted the land to belong to the families that inherited it. And so God made provision in the law of Moses that the land would not change hands whereby 
land monopolies and land trusts would be set up and people would be forced into cities and into, you know, small apartments where they would just work and kind of not really have a place of their own. God wanted them to have that land. He gave it to them. And so in the law, he made the law of the family redeemer. And it worked like this. That if a man or family fell on hard times and they had to sell their land or mortgage it because they needed the money to pay off debts or maintain their freedom, it would always be the possibility for them that they could redeem that land, that they'd be able to pay off those debts. And no matter how long or no matter what the terms of the contract were, you could always get back the land. It would remain in the family. It's the way that God protected the ownership of the land for his people. So you could leave, you could return, you could pay your debt, you could redeem or reclaim your land. But what would happen in the instance that the landowner, the one who signed the deed, dies, like takes place in our story? Elimelech, who owned the land, he dies and he goes to Moab, and now Naomi, his widow, and this nomadic woman, Ruth, come back. Well, what hope do they have now that Elimelech is dead? Well, the law of the Goel said that a kinsman or a next of kin, someone, a close family member, could pay off that debt and redeem the land and restore it to the family. And that's the hope that Naomi has when she says, is he not our relative? He has the ability to redeem this land. Now, under the law, someone who was going to be a family redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, had to meet four criteria. First of all, they had to be a close relative in the family. They couldn't be a stranger or someone standing in. They had to be a relative. The closest relative was the one who had first dibs. Number two, that man had to have the money to pay. He couldn't borrow money in order to pay off that debt. He had to have the provision, the ability to pay it himself. Number three, that man also had to be debt-free. He wouldn't be able to redeem land of someone else until he was also free of his own debt. And then number four, he had to be willing He couldn't be forced to make that investment if he didn't want to do it. He had to be willing to do it. And so Naomi looks at Boaz, looks at Ruth, and says, this man is a potential redeemer for you. He's a kinsman. He's a family member. Now, we also know that Boaz is a picture, a type of Jesus. And the redemptive work of Boaz is a prefiguring picture of what Jesus would also do for us. And so... If we lay over the same criteria that had to be met by Boaz and we put it upon Jesus Christ, well, Jesus would have to meet the same criteria if he wanted to redeem the bride. That's you and me, the lost or the Jew. What are those criteria? Well, first of all, he has to be a close relative. Do you know that that's why Jesus had to be the son of man? He couldn't just be an angel or an incarnate uh, visage of God in some way. Like the Gnostics proclaimed, he would walk but not leave footprints while he went. He had to be the son of man, a descendant of Adam. He had to be a part of man's family, Adam's family, if you would. It was essential. It had to be. It was the law. That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and a lot of the cults have it wrong. Because they make Jesus less than man. He had to be fully man. He was not an angel. He was man. Had to be man. Because that was the requirement of the law. He must also be debt-free. Now, the debt that you and I owe for our redemption is not a money debt. We don't owe a sum of money. There is no sum of money that you could pay in order to redeem yourself from the debt you owe. Your debt and my debt is a sin debt. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so in order for that debt to be paid, blood needs to be shed. But the person whose blood would be shed on our behalf would have to be debt-free. They wouldn't be able to have any sin if they were going to stand in and take the punishment for us. What does it say about Jesus? It says, not by corruptible things like gold and silver, but by the precious blood of the Lamb. And so Jesus not only had to be man, but he had to be sinless. In order for him to be able to redeem us and pay the price for our redemption, our freedom... He himself had to be free. That's why he had to be tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. He endured every temptation and never faltered at one point. And if he did, then he is disqualified. He's not able to redeem you and I. He must also have the money. Meaning that in that 
pursuit of a sinless life, he has to be able to earn for himself the price of redemption. Now, the resurrection from the dead, the fact that Jesus rose, is the proof that he had the money. Because he had no sin, the grave could not hold him. So he has the money to pay. So he makes three out of the four criteria. What's the final one? He must be willing. He has to be willing to lay to your account and to my account the price that needs to be paid for our sin to be forgiven. In other words, he earned a get-out-of-hell-free card, and he has to be willing to transfer it to your name and thereby transfer your guilt and sin onto himself. That's what Jesus would have to do for you and I. He'd have to meet the four criteria of the goel or of the redeemer in order to successfully redeem us. Now, Naomi sees that Boaz has the potential. He's a close relative. But does he meet all four? Can he, is he debt-free? Does he have the money? And is he willing? That's what we have yet to find out. And so Naomi hatches a plan. Notice with me in verse 3. She says to Ruth, therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, Naomi has a little bit of life sense and experience that she transfers to Ruth here. Hey, put on your best clothes, make yourself smell good, and don't mess with a man until he's done working and eating. It's just good sense that she gives to her here. But then she says in verse 4, Then it shall be that when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And so she says, look nice, smell nice, wear a veil. And then she says, go down to the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor is the place where the rest of this scene is going to take place. It takes on a pivotal, uh, you know, um, place within our study and within our understanding. What was the threshing floor? It was the place where the harvest of wheat would be threshed and beaten. The wheat would then be separated from the chaff and you would take away the crop or the produce and you would leave behind the waste. Now they didn't have a threshing floor for every farm. They had them in different areas and you would rent it out. You would have the threshing floor for a particular week or a particular season where you would thresh your harvest, and then the threshing floor would be used by someone else. And this is the season now where Boaz would have it. It would usually be a place of elevation where there was good crosswind. It would be a barn. It would be covered, and it would be opened on most sides so that the wind could blow through freely. You would have oxen or servants stomp the grain. There would be a continual stomping in order to separate the heads of wheat from the chaff. It would be beaten, it would be stomped, it would be crushed. And in the process, the chaff would be separated from the wheat. And then as the winds would blow through, the chaff that was thrown up into the air would then be carried away and the wheat that had weight and substance would drop to the ground and then you would have your harvest. And so that, that's what would happen with that thing. And so that this takes place at the threshing floor. That's going to become an important factor later on uh, in the drama. But then Naomi instructs Ruth to do this thing that will be communication through custom. Go to him, mark the place where he lies, and then uncover his feet during the time that he is sleeping, being unknown to him, and just do this, and then do whatever it is that he tells you to do. And so Ruth does it. She does all that her mother-in-law tells her to do. And so understand the picture of what's taking place here. In this picture, the wandering Jew, Naomi, is pointing the unqualified Gentile to the Savior who will get there by riding the customs of the Jew. Now, I love it. Naomi is called more than any other thing, even more than her name. She's called the mother-in-law. Did you know that that's exactly what the Jew is to the Christian? The Jew is, for us, our mother-in-law. In other words, if it wasn't for the Jew, you and I wouldn't be here right now. We wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have our salvation. It's through the Jew that the scriptures were laid out. It's through the Jew that the Savior came into the world. We are born of them, so to speak. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't exist. So the Jew, in many ways, is our mother. But she's also still bound under the covenant of the law. Hasn't been set free in grace. And so this mother-in-law, who's nomadic or wandering, 
points the way for an unqualified Gentile to find her way to the feet of the Savior, this custom. And so here we come now, Ruth's risky request, verse 7. It says, and after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful. Now, this is not drunkenness. He's not, you know, wasted. That's not the idea behind what's happening. It's just a state of well-being. He's eaten, he's refreshed, and he's cheerful. It says, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. She comes to him in the dark. Now understand that there was no electricity. There was no lights. There was no lamps. There was nothing at all where he could see anything. And all of a sudden, he feels a draft at his feet. And as he wakes up, he's startled. He notices there's someone there. It's a woman. And she asks this question. She, in essence, proposes to Boaz. She says, take your maidservant under your wing. Now, this is completely backwards from the way that we do things. In our society, the man proposes to the woman. But here, she proposes to him. She's asking him to be her redeemer. And this is an incredible uh, thing that she is, is doing here and asking him to do this. By the way, this is exactly what we do when we come to Christ. We come to him and we ask for redemption. It's what she's doing. But this is a real risky thing for Ruth. Think about it. First of all, she's going to a strange place at night, not knowing what could happen there. I mean, she kind of knows Boaz, but she doesn't really know Boaz. She's experienced a little bit of favor from him, but for all she knows, he could be a wacko or a pervert. And here she's coming in the middle of the night. No one else knows that she's there. She uncovers her feet, and then she makes a strange request. She's going out on a limb. Is this really safe? Has to be going through her mind. Question number two, what if he says no? What if I go through all of this and deck myself out and anoint myself with oil and uncover his feet? What about the shame that that I would experience if I come to him, the only one with any potential? And what if he says no? What if he rejects? What if he can't? My hopes would be dashed. Number three, this is a big decision for her. I mean, put yourself in Ruth's shoes for a minute. Here she's nomadic. She's from Moab. Her customs, her traditions are totally different. And here she's coming to a man. And if he says yes, it means her whole life is going to change. She's no longer going to be Ruth the Moabitess. She's going to be Ruth the husband of Boaz. She'll take his name. She'll take his nation. She'll take his customs. He'll become her head. And her whole life is going to change because she's making an allegiance, a marital covenant with this man, Boaz. Now, think about that for a minute. For a Moabite, the Jew was their enemy. There was a stigma that would be upon Ruth for even being in Israel. And now she's willing to identify with a nation that is purely hated by most of the rest of the world, at least their surrounding enemies, and certainly by the Moabites. And so this is a big decision for Ruth to be making. And she still has the question, what kind of life will it be? I'm a Moabite. He's a Jew. We worship Chemosh and false gods. He worships the one true God, the God of Israel. What kind of life will it be like to be under Moab? I think the same type of things go through the mind of a person who comes to Christ asking to be redeemed. Is this safe? Am I even safe coming to Jesus? Who is Jesus? My conceptions of him, what I've heard of him or thought of him in the past or what my tradition taught me growing up, I'm not sure if this is really the kind of life that I want to live. Is it safe to come to Jesus? What's he going to ask me to do? Is he going to ask me to be a missionary and go to Zimbabwe? Or am I going to have to serve in some way that I hate or be around people that I loathe? What what is he going to do if I give my life to him? Is this even safe? What if he says no? What if I come to Christ and it doesn't take? I ask for salvation, but he rejects me. I've read that he chooses some and it seems as though others are not. So what if I'm just one of the ones that's not? What if he says no? This is a big decision. I mean, to follow Christ, it means I'm giving my whole life. It means I'm dying to myself, to my desires, to my ambitions and plans. I'm making him Lord of all. I'm jumping in a river and I'm committing myself to go wherever it leads, wherever he leads. It's a leap of faith and trust. 
And really, what kind of life is it? What kind of life is it to follow Jesus? I mean, there's a stigma attached to it. Christians are hated by most of the world, at least the ones that really live it, especially the ones that talk about it. And if I really give my life to Jesus, what kind of life is that going to be like? Is it a good life? Sometimes I think people come to Christ, but they don't really come to Christ. They have kind of a Ruth chapter 2 experience with the Lord. You know, they, they kind of wander in his field. They stumble onto his truth, his sustenance. And they glean there. They gain some insights for living. They come to church and they love what they get from it. They experience some of his blessing and some of his favor. And they kind of are strung along in the preliminaries of having a relationship with him. They, they like what he does for them. They like the way they feel when they come to church. And, and, and they kind of get excited about maybe there's something happening. But their relationship never goes any further than that. They never come to the threshing floor. They never come to the place of sacrifice, which is what the the threshing floor ultimately speaks of. It was a threshing floor purchased by David that became the land uh, real estate for the temple that would later be the place where the offerings would be made, speaking of the cross of Christ. The threshing floor was the place where the wheat was separated from the chaff where there's a beating that takes place and that which is worthless is separated from that which is worthwhile in life. And they'll come to Jesus because of what he'll give to them, but they'll never give themselves back to him. They'll never come to him and say, Lord, I want you to redeem my life. I'm willing to go wherever you lead. I'm willing to uncover your feet and let you spread your skirt over me that I might be completely yours, linked to you in blood covenant. No longer mine, no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. Dead to myself, dead to the world, and alive only to you. Many people come to Christ to glean, but they never come to Christ to give their lives completely to him the way that Ruth does here. Ruth surrenders at the threshing floor. Sometimes we even think that Christ would be lucky if he got us. Sometimes we think that he's the one that's on trial. Well, I'm going to weigh out my options and maybe I'll choose Jesus if he has something to offer me. And little do we realize that we're the ones that are on trial. It's not him that has a need for us. It's us that has a need for him. And if we were wise, we would come to him at the threshing floor and we would ask him, Lord, would you spread your skirt over your handmaid? Would you be my Lord, my Savior? Well, Boaz's answer comes in verse 10. The suspense is killing us. We'll pick up here next week. No, verse 10. He says, Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, this tells us that Boaz was probably a little bit older than Ruth. He's probably more of a contemporary of Naomi than he is of Ruth. He could be 15, perhaps 20 years older than she is. And he commends her here that she did not go after the younger men, but that he saw that the true value was in him. And he says, and now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you that you request for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Not only is he willing, but we find that he is wanting, that he is blessed by her request. He doesn't look at her as something that's less or subpar to what he could get or what he would want. But he sees that she loves him and he's willing to take her under his skirt. And then he calls her a virtuous woman. And I love that. It points us directly to Proverbs chapter 31. That text that highlights what a virtuous woman is. And I would point you there to read later and see exactly what the Bible calls a virtuous woman. It's a great text. You know, many of us, we look at our wives and we look at Proverbs 31 and we say, man, Lord, you got some work to do, you know. But before you think that, you ever stop to consider that you are the one who's called to be the virtuous woman, man? Because though your bride is your bride, you are the bride of Christ. And if you ever laid your life over the things written in Proverbs 31 and asked yourself the question, how virtuous am I? Do I really fit the bill? I've been laying it on my wife to be this woman, praying that she would step up to the plate and be the virtuous woman the Bible calls women to be. But am I the virtuous bride that Jesus is looking for, that I could be? He calls her a virtuous woman here. My people of my town, they've heard of your virtue. It's my pleasure to take you. Well, the plot thickens in verse 12. Because the answer that was yes immediately now has a conditional clause. Watch this. 
He says, now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. In other words, yes, I am a potential redeemer for you, but there is someone who's older than I am, a closer relative to you than I am, that has a right to claim you, to redeem you if he wants. And so in order for me to redeem you, that issue, that other has to be dealt with. And so he says, verse 13, stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. Now, you say, what? Good. I thought you wanted to. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. There's an obstacle. Yes, Boaz wants to redeem Ruth. He's taken by her attention to him. She is obviously taken by his wealth and love for her in a pure and holy, virtuous way. But there's a problem. There's an obstacle. There's something that stands between Ruth and Boaz being linked together in this redemptive relationship. And that is that there's a closer relative. Now, it could be that Boaz had an older brother. We read chapter 4. It doesn't seem that way. It doesn't seem as though Boaz is very close with this man necessarily. But there's someone who's closer to the family. It's someone that has a call or an entitlement to redeem Ruth before Boaz can actually lay claim to her according to the law. You say, well, how does this apply to our picture? As we consider the romance of redemption and how this applies to our walk with Christ, we come to him, we ask for redemption. And hey, listen, did you know that Jesus says the same thing to you and me as we come? Hey, there's someone closer than me. There's a relative, there's someone related to you There's something that stands in the way of me redeeming you, and it has to be taken out of the way before I can actually do it. There's some arrangements that need to be made. There's a transaction that has to take place, and I can't redeem you until that happens because something has to be removed. You say, well, what's the closer relative? What has the right to call redemption on your life before Christ does? The answer, the law. The law. See, The Bible says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. The problem is, what was first? The law. The law that was given on Mount Sinai predates the cross by a couple of thousand years. And therefore, the law lays claim to you and I before Christ can lay claim. The law has to be taken out of the way. What is the law? The law is the Ten Commandments. The law is the old covenant, as it's called in the Bible. The rules and regulations that were laid upon us that stated that if you want to be saved, if you want to be redeemed, then you must adhere to and keep the law. And The law has a claim on you, and its demands must be satisfied, or you must be removed from under its claim, one or the other. So the question is, can the law... This next of kin, this potential redeemer that lays claim on you, can the law and will the law redeem you? Let me give you a couple of facts about the law for your consideration. First of all, the law can show you the way, but it cannot save you. In Romans chapter 3, the apostle Paul points this out in this way. In verse 19, he says this. He says, now we know that whatsoever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's what the law does, number one. It's called the ministry of condemnation. The law points to every failure that you have. It is the perfect light that reveals the imperfections that are in you. That's what the law does. The law stops our mouth and removes our claim at having right relationship with God. You're guilty before God under the law. Therefore, verse 20, he says, by the deeds of the law, that is by keeping the law, by adhering to its call upon you, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, not only can't the law redeem you, it was never intended to. The purpose that the law was given was not so that you would try to measure up to the bar and hopefully make it over, but rather the law was given so that you would see your need for a Savior. By the law is the knowledge of sin. It reveals that there's a problem. The law says, 
Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not covet, that is, be jealous. That you shall honor God only and honor your parents. That you keep holy his Sabbath. That you'll have no graven image or other gods. And the law laid over our lives reveals that we are not keepers of the law. That we fall short of what God calls us to be and calls us to do. And therefore we're guilty. And the penalty for breaking the law, the Bible says, is death. The wages of sin is death. He says, so by the law is the knowledge of sin. But verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is that there is a way to be righteous apart from the law. You can't keep the law. I can't keep the law. The Bible says that no one, there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one of us could keep the law. But there is a way. To be righteous apart from the law. Even, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of uh, the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, there are two things that could potentially redeem you. One is the law that lays claim to you. And the other is Christ, who does the work for you. The law demands, Christ gives grace. And those two lay claim, the law takes precedence. It's older than grace. So the law can show you, it can point you to the fact that there's hope, but the law itself cannot save you. How do you get saved then? There must be interaction. There has to be relationship, and there has to be a transaction. That's exactly what Ruth does. She goes to the threshing floor. She uncovers his feet. She speaks to him. She asks for redemption. And the arrangements for a transaction are made for her to be brought out from under the arm of this other redeemer and given exclusive right by Boaz. That's what Ruth does. Fact number two about the law is that the works of the law are not recognized in in heaven's court. Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 says, now to Abraham, oh goodness, wrote down the wrong verse. Okay, I'll skip that one. Romans 3.20, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. That is that the law is not recognized in heaven. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God and not by works, lest any man should boast. And Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his grace, he has saved us. Now, consider this for just a minute. Because what the law does is the law adorns us with works. It gives us a reason to boast. Well, I keep God's law. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I was circumcised on the eighth day concerning the righteousness that then the law was blameless. The zeal, I was persecuting the church. And he goes through this whole list of things that he could boast about. And that's what the law does. It gives us something to boast about. And that's what Ruth tried, isn't it? Naomi said, hey, Ruth, put on your best dress. Look your best. Anoint yourself. Hey, hide that stink. In other words, Ruth. There's something coming out of you that you don't want Boaz to see. So cover that smell and cover your face. Don't let it be known who you are. So put on your best dress, anoint yourself, and then put on the veil. But guess what happened when Ruth got there? It was midnight. Boaz never even saw the dress that she was wearing. He didn't see anything that she was... None of that stuff that was to her, the outward adorning of what would make Boaz attracted to her, made any difference at all once she got there. And that's the same thing that happens with the law. It's not recognized in heaven's court. If you come to God and you say, God, I've got this list of credentials. I've been to church my whole life. I was an altar boy. I burned incense to you. I lit candles and prayed prayers. I walked old ladies across the street. I never missed Bible study. I gave every week. And you bring your credentials to heaven and let's see how far it gets you. What you find when you get there is that it bears no weight at all before God in heaven. The works of the law are not recognized. In fact, Isaiah the prophet says it like this. He says, our most righteous acts are before God like filthy rags. Completely worthless. You cannot please God by your adherence to his law. Galatians 5.4 says, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. 
you're trying to please God by your good deeds or your good behavior, the Bible says that you've become estranged from Christ and you're fallen from grace. Fact number three about the law is that the law can hide you, but it cannot provide. Let me give you a few more verses back in Ruth. Ruth chapter three. Look at verse 14. It says, so she lay at his feet until morning. Notice that she laid at his feet. She didn't lay at his side. This was in no way impure. There was nothing going on here that was unrighteous. It says, she laid at his feet until morning, and then she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, bring the shawl, the veil that is on you, and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley. It should be measures of barley. If it was six ephahs, that would be 360 pounds. I mean, if she's carrying that home, then she's a big girl, you know. It's six measures of barley. And he says he laid it on her. (laughs) She's a brick house, you know, or something. (laughs) He, he He laid it on her and she went into the city. But, but notice, here's what happens here. He says, take the veil. Take the thing that was hiding your identity, the thing that you were hiding behind, and now I'm going to fill it with something else. The veil throughout the Bible speaks of something. It speaks of a hidden identity, especially in the context of religious works or the keeping of the law. We see Tamar wearing a veil when she didn't want to be identified by Judah. He couldn't see who she really was. We see it again uh, a a little bit later on, um, not with uh, Tamar, but with, hang on, small writing. It happened again later, you know, that, but, 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 but ultimately, ultimately it, oh, it was Leah, Leah, remember Leah, Jacob wanted to deceive, uh, you know, sorry, Laban wanted to receive, I'm getting my balance, it's coming back, Jacob. And so he put a veil on Leah so that she wouldn't see who he was actually marrying. There was a hidden identity. But the cases most made or the context is most clearly seen, not with those two women that wore the veil, but it was with Moses. You remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he met with God and there he received the commands and then the architecture for the tabernacle? When he went up on the mountain, the Bible says that when he came down from the mountain, his face was shining. That it was so bright, the glory of it, that the children of Israel couldn't look directly into it. And so the Bible tells us that Moses put a veil over his face in order to shield them from the light, the eminence that was coming from him. And he would go up the mountain, he would take off the veil, his face would shine. He would come down the mountain, he would put the veil on so that the people wouldn't be blinded by the light. And it seemed like it was no big deal. Hey, Moses, his face is shiny. He's wearing a veil. It must have looked kind of strange. That's how you'd find Moses. He's the guy wearing the veil walking around in the camp. But listen, the apostle Paul points to that story and he tells us something that we don't find back over in the story in Exodus. The text is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The context of which Paul is speaking here is the law versus grace. The two covenants. And he's talking about the glory of the new covenant. You and I have been set free from the law. And he reaches back into Old Testament history and he brings up Moses and this scene with the veil on his face. And he uses it to explain to us how not to live, how not to be under the law. If you read it, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, unlike we are unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Do you catch that? In other words, what Paul is telling us here is that the reason Moses wore the veil was not because he was trying to be sensitive to their eyesight. Oh, I don't want you to burn your eye, your retinas out looking at this bright glory that's going on in my face. That wasn't the reason. You know what the reason was? Why Moses wore a veil? Because the glory was fading. Because when Moses wasn't on the mountain, when Moses was down in the valley, the glory started to fade. The shine wasn't there. It began to be revealed that the light wasn't coming out of Moses. It was a reflection of what he received while he was in the presence of the father. And so he put a veil on his face so that they couldn't see that the light was, 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 and here's the point. Here's what he's saying. 
Moses was hiding behind the veil. He was hiding the fact that he had infirmities and he didn't want the people to see it. That's what the law does. See, we wear a veil of the law. And so here's what happens is you go on a retreat and you spend time with the Lord and you hear his word and he revives your heart and you come home and there's a glow on your face. And you feel like you've been set free and there's a newness and a revival, you know, and, and you're sharing about the Lord and things are happening. But you know what happens a couple of days later? That glory, it starts to fade. It was so bright. It was so brilliant. It was so rich. His presence felt so real. His word was so alive. But a few days have passed. I haven't been to church. I haven't been on the mountain. And goodness, the glory is beginning to fade. And so what do you do? You put up a veil. You begin to hide behind the works of the law. You begin to talk in ways that you would never talk in a normal setting. You say, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. But inside you're thinking, I'm tired and want to take a nap. You're you're completely, you're putting on something that's not there. There's a veil. And and what you're insinuating is, oh, if you could only see the glory that's going on in here. I'm going to, I'll veil it a little bit for you, you know, and and all this. It's fake. It's not real. Listen, did you know that you do not possess the glory of God? (laughs) You don't have it. And your works, your righteousness, your acting cannot ever bring that forth. And so Paul says, we are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look to the end of that which was uh, passing away. But their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Away. Do you understand the hugeness of this? Is that when you come to Jesus Christ, you are set free from the law and the veil that you hide behind and act religiously because you don't want people to see your infirmities, you can get rid of it. You don't have to pretend to be something that you're not. The Bible says that he knows our frame, that he considers that we are just dust. He knows what we are. And in Christ Jesus, he redeemed us for what we are and what he could turn us into, not for what we would pretend to be or what we would act like and do. The veil hides. Christ provides. Notice what Boaz does back in our text. He says, hey, take that veil, lose the veil. Stop acting like you're something you're not. Stop trying to hide your identity, hide behind religious works. Let me show you what I want to do with that veil. He says, hold it out. 360 pounds. Hey, what grain, what gain, what sustenance did that veil, those religious works, that faithful attendance, those countless works of service, what did that ever provide for you? What I want to give you is so much more. It's worth so much more. The law can hide you, but it cannot provide for you. In Christ Jesus, we have been set free from the law. We don't have to wear a veil and pretend to be something we're not. We just put the word in. Fact number four, relationship provides what the law never could. Notice with me in verse 16. It says, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She's in a relationship with Boaz. He immediately provides for her more than she could ever ask, think, or imagine. So transformed is she almost immediately by this experience that when she comes back to Naomi, Naomi doesn't even recognize who she is. She says, is that you, my daughter? What is this? And then she shows her the 360 pounds or the six measures of this visible to Naomi. And I think the message is clear. What Boaz, Jesus, is saying to this unqualified Gentile, he said, hey, go tell your mother-in-law I've got a plan for her too. You know that God's not through with the Jew? Though she is our mother-in-law and she has yet to come into the freedom of fellowship with Christ, God is using Gentiles and will use the Gentiles to bring Uh, light to the Jew. That's what Paul says in Romans uh, 10 and 11. But the relationship that she now has provides what the law never could. And then we have Ruth's rest, verse 18. It says, Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Notice what Ruth is commanded to do. Rest. 
rest. What did Jesus say? He said, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, it's not up to you to work out the terms of your redemption. He's the one that works out the terms of our redemption. He's the one that's going to go and do the transacting, what needs to be done in order to move you into that right standing once you come to him and put your faith in him. So by way of conclusion, as we come a little bit closer to the surface here, what's the point of all of this? Is this just a poetry reading? You know, we're going to look at Old Testament scripture and find the similitudes to New Testament life. You know, what do we take from this? What's the purpose? Why do we do this? Here's why. You and me, we're the unqualified Gentile. Lost in sin, separated from God with an unpayable debt. A sin debt you could never pay. We're held under the curse of the law. The terms of the law are perfection. If you haven't met those terms, then you stand in a place condemned, unredeemed, impoverished. But there is one who's willing to redeem. Not because he has to. It's not of an obligation. But it's because he wants to. He's willing. Here's what we must do. We come to him. Just as Ruth went to Boaz on the threshing floor, we come, we uncover his feet. And when we uncover his feet, you know what you see? You see a place where a nail was. You see a place where blood was poured out. For you have not been redeemed by corruptible things such as gold and silver, but by the precious blood of the Lamb. And when you uncover his feet, we lay our lives down right there. We lay down at the feet of the Savior and we give ourselves completely to Him. And then here's what He does. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And here's how. Verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That he does the work of redemption. And thus, then we get to live in relationship with him. And here's what that looks like. Is that the one who made you, the one who knows you better than you know yourself, is able to complete you, and then he's able to lead you, and now he wants to be your covering, and he wants to separate the wheat from the chaff within your life and give you that which is substantial. He wants to give you what he calls an abundant light and then reward you with heaven. That's his plan and his desire for each of your life. You know what you find when you get there? You find security. The very thing that Naomi was seeking for Ruth is that there is security. There's a place of security where in this world there is no other place of security. You find that he promises a love that is unending. Jesus called it a river that flows from within. It springs up into eternal life. He gives you a renewed mind. He makes you stable and free. He promises to provide and lead and protect. He says he'll rebuild the broken pieces of life that have surrounded you from the past. He promises to restore the years that the locust has eaten, to make you the apple of his eye. And he says that no weapon that's been formed against you will prosper. He promises to rebuild what's been lost and to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think. He promises to secure a place for you in heaven, an inheritance that fades not away. And the proof is in his feet. You see what he was willing to do for you. Father, we just thank you so much for what you've laid before us in your word. Lord, to see the picture and how it unfolds. To see through this love relationship that Boaz had with Ruth, to recognize and consider how much you loved us. That you were willing to lay your life down for us. I pray, Lord, that you would work in us. That you would call us close to your side. Lord, for some of us, we've been trusting in our, our own righteousness. Living according to the law. Hoping that our own good works would save us. But have yet to trust in you, Jesus, completely. And I pray that tonight, Lord, you would open our eyes to just how much you're loving us, what you've done for us, and your goodwill towards us. And 
You would set us free from the weight of the law. Help us to know you. Help us to walk with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.